God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming today. And we realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as we go through God's word and you discover God's peace and the promises he has for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14? That's where we're going to be today. You know what we do every time. We just put those verses up here in the video for you just to make it easier for you to follow along. And today we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Genesis, or as you would say in Hebrew, Hasefer Bereshit, the book of beginnings. And today I'd like to talk to you about faith that grows. You know, we've been reading about the life of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And the father of all those who believe in the God of the Jewish Bible and his Messiah, Yeshua. And as we've seen before, Abraham was called by God to leave everything. To leave his country, his father's house, everything. And to let God lead him to a place that he had never really been. And that took faith to answer that call, didn't it? God in faith means that we believe him. We believe that He's going to take care of us on our journey through life. Faith means believing that God is good and that He loves you enough to care for you. Faith means not leaning on your own understanding, but depending on God to lead you every day of your life. Faith is how we please God. When we trust Him, we're acting like little children of His, trusting completely in our Father's love and care. And that pleases God. It would you too for your own little children that way, right? To trust in your love and care for them. In fact, you'd worry if they weren't trusting in your love and care for them. You'd think that something's wrong. Well, that's the way God is. He wants us to be relaxed and resting in Him and completely in peace in His love and care for us. It pleases God when we let go of all the trials in life and turn life over to Him. He's faithful. He won't let you down. But the thing many people fail to realize about faith is that it's something you practice every day in every aspect of your life. It's not just something that you try one time and you look back with fond memories upon that experience, the time you stepped out in faith. No, it's supposed to be an everyday faith. It's as much a part of your life as breathing. It's something that fills every day every activity, every decision that you make. You place everything, everything in God's hands. Everything. And there's one more thing you can expect in living a life of faith in God. You can expect that God will grow your faith as you go through life. You can expect that God will stretch your faith in Him to where you trust Him more and more as you go through life. And that's the way it was with Abraham. Abraham Avenu, Abraham our father, the father of our faith, as the Bible calls him. God called him to a journey of faith. Then God began stretching out Abraham's faith, bringing bigger and bigger trials to Abraham, so that Abraham could trust God more and more for bigger and bigger answers to his bigger and bigger prayers. You see what I'm saying? And in fact, next week, we'll be finding the very key that God looks at us 
to find in our life, the thing that He desires the most in our life. And I'll just do a little spoiler here. It comes down to faith. It's going to be in the message next week. You don't want to miss that one. But for today, we're looking at Genesis 14. At a time when God greatly stretched out Abraham's faith, let's look at it together. Genesis 14, starting at verse 1, and it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, and Chedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tido, or Tiral, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, in other words, Zoar. Verse 3 continues, it says, All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, or the Salton Sea. You know it today as the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Chedalomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. They're talking about the, the five kings that were there in the plains around Sodom and Gomorrah. And they had served these other four kings led by Chedalomer. And they were foreign kings. But in the thirteenth year, these kings of the plain around Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled. And it says in verse 5, In the fourteenth year, Chedalomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtarot, Canaim and Suzim and Ham, and Imim in Shave Kiriatim, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Verse 7 then continues, says, Then they turned back and came to Ein Meshpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt there in Hazazon Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, in other words, Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Chedalomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. The five of the area around uh, Sodom and Gomorrah versus the four foreign kings to whom they had paid tribute for all of these years, but now they didn't want to pay that tribute anymore, and they were rebelling. So now these four kings are coming against the five. And it says, Now in the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there. And the remainder fled to the mountains. Now, this sounds like a regular war story, doesn't it? And he goes, what does it have to do with the life of Abraham? Well, we're going to get into that. But, you know, if you look back at this, the scriptures are very plain. These five kings of the plain, no pun intended, had been paying taxes, heavy, heavy duties to these four foreign kings. They probably had been conquered before by these four kings. And the four kings said, we will let you live and you can still be kings over your own cities, but you have to pay us these fees and taxes that we want. A tribute, if you will. And it says that Chedor uh, Laomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked. 
You know, archaeologists today have documented the destruction left by these four foreign kings. And they found something interesting. These guys were ruthless. They found that in every village that their path had been on, they had plundered and left it in complete desolation and ruins. The countryside was even laid waste. The population had been wiped out and had been led away into captivity. The kings of the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah in that area knew the reputation for these four kings and they were ruthless. They didn't leave anyone alive and whoever they did leave alive, they carried them off into captivity. And it said that from the archaeologist records that we know of today, it said that the entire area had looked like just an abandoned cemetery. It wasn't kept at all. All of its monuments were shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground, broken in small pieces. Now the Valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits. If it wasn't bad enough that everything was torn down in, in desolation and ruins, the natural habitat of the Sidim Valley was full of asphalt pits. And if you look on a map and you know anything about plate tectonics and earthquakes and, and fault lines that run through Israel, there is what's called the Jordan Valley Rift Fault. And it is a northern extension of what's called the West Africa or the East African Horn Fault. And it goes all the way up through the Jordan River Valley, through the Dead Sea, through the uh, Sea of Galilee, Hakaneret, as we would say. And it goes all the way up through there and through the north of Israel. Now, you say, well, okay, lots of places have earthquake faults. Oh, this one's different. Most of the places that have earthquake faults, the separation of the mantle from the crust of the earth, the crust is the upper area that we walk on, we call that the dirt, the ground, that may go 30 to 100 kilometers down into the ground before it gets to the mantle of the earth, which is far more molten and magma is there, and it's very, very hot and completely different from the crust of the earth. And in most places where there's a fault line throughout the world because of plate tectonics and earthquake faults, that distance between the bottom or between the top of the crust and the top of the mantle, the second layer of the earth below it, is somewhere between 50 and 100 kilometers below it. 100 kilometers to 50 kilometers down below the ground is the beginning of the mantle. However, in the Jordan Rift Valley Fault, it's unique. It's only about 25 to 30 kilometers down. In other words, the very mantle of the earth one of the bigger, huge layers of the earth that is very much hotter in which there's a lot of magma and everything like that in there. It's only 25 to 30 kilometers down and the only place it happens like that in all the world is the Jordan Rift Valley Fault. It's unique because we read about the account of Sodom and Gomorrah when they were destroyed and all this tar and brimstone coming down out of the heavens could have been shot up from the earth as a fissure developed and actually parts of the mantle itself were spewed out through the crust. That could have been one of the things that could have happened. And so we see some unique geology in this area. And now the, it says the Valley of Sidim in the verses we just read were full of asphalt pits. 
Well, that kind of goes a long way in explaining what all those asphalt pits were doing there. Those were dangerous. Those weren't swimming pools. They were pits full of tar. Pits full of asphalt, tar, if you will. And in the Hebrew, it's a good example of how the language uses or repetition to emphasize something. The Hebrew word that this was said is full of pits, pits of bitumen. In other words, pits being said twice means there was an abundance of it, a plenitude of it. It was full. And now we keep on reading in verse 11. And then we're just going to read verse 11 and 12 briefly, and then we're going to get into some really interesting stuff. It's all interesting, but you get into some different parts of the story in just a couple of more verses. But for right now, verse 11 says, Then they all took the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, these kings, these foreign kings who had come against the kings of the plains, against Sodom and Gomorrah and the other kings from that area, these foreign kings who wanted their taxes, their fees. It kind of sounds like politicians today, huh? They just don't relent. They just want more and more taxes, more and more fees. But then they took all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. They took all their provisions. In other words, all the food that they had to live on. And then they went away. At verse 12, it says, they also took Lot. Remember Lot? Abram's brother had died earlier before Abram came to the land of Canaan. And his brother had a son named Lot. We'd say it in Hebrew, Lot. Okay, and Lot was Abram's nephew then, if you will. But these foreign kings, as they took captives, as they took all the provisions, all the possessions of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, they took many away captive. And Lot, Abram's nephew, part of his own family, part of his own genealogy, his own family and DNA, they took Lot and his family. Because Lot had dwelt in Sodom. Remember our chapter last week? We said that Sodom looked down, he saw all the green around the Jordan River Valley, and he chose for himself. But Abraham didn't say anything. Abram let God choose for him. Lot went down where his own human reasoning, his own human wisdom said, oh, that's a good place. Look, it's got green grass. Look, there's plenty of water close by in the Jordan River area. But you know, when you don't give your life to God and you insist on doing your own plans, you insist on leading your own life the way that you want to do it and the way that you think's best, the problem with that is God knows the future and you don't. God knows where to put you today, where you're going to be safe tomorrow. He knows where to put you now to make sure you're in the right place at the right time later, you see. But you don't know those things. It's better to let God have control of your life and let Him plan it. I quoted the verse last week, I think I did, in Jeremiah, Yeremiahu Anavi, Jeremiah the prophet in the Tanakh. In chapter 10, verse 23, I think it is, it said, Jeremiah says, I know, Lord, that we are not our own. Our lives are not our own, Jeremiah says to the Lord. We are not able to plan our own ways. Did you hear that? We are not able to plan our own ways. And it makes sense. Our lives are not our own. We're not able to plan our own ways. There's a wealth of wisdom in those two verses right there. Because it says that your life doesn't belong to you. If you think about it, you were created by the Creator. You're here for a reason. You didn't come from the goo through the zoo to you. Come on. 
Where's the second place creatures with all this intelligence? How come monkeys? How come dolphins? How come other animals on the face of the earth aren't busy designing space shots to go past Mars or out of the solar system or to launch satellites into space or using scanning electron tunneling microscopes to look at individual cells and move individual atoms around? How come they haven't discovered DNA and how to use CRISPR technology to uh, change the DNA? How come there are no second place animals out of all these hundreds of thousands of animals on Earth? You are different. And there's a reason why you're different. You did not come from the goo through the zoo to you. You came from the creator to you. And there's a reason why you're here. You have a noble purpose in life. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. They like to think that they're just a freak accident of nature, that they're some uh, akin to a monkey that got lucky or something. And the reason why they like to think that is they don't want to think about God because they like the sin that they live in. But on the other hand, they don't understand that God wants to forgive their sins and give them something far, 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 far better than the sin that they're in. By the way, and the sin wants to kill them and destroy them and steal all of their life and happiness away. But God wants to give them life and give it to them more abundantly. Now, when we see that these kings came and they took all the provisions and they took Lot away, they took Lot and Lot had chosen for himself to live down there around Sodom. Oh, he saw everything was good. He was going to go down there and make money. There was plenty of green grass to feed the flocks. There was plenty of water. What could possibly, possibly go wrong, Lot was thinking. But God knew what was going to happen. It was going to be destroyed. But even before it got to the day in which it was going to be destroyed, here's these four kings coming against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other kings of the plain, and they destroy the city, leave the land desolate. No one would even want to travel through there. It looked horrible. And all these asphalt pits there, and the people were killed, and all the possessions were taken away by the foreign kings. And Lot himself is being kidnapped and marched away to a life of servitude in a foreign land where he would surely die there, he and his family. Did Lot make a good choice? He made the best choice he thought he could have made. But his problem was he didn't ask God, God, where do you want me? Abraham waited on the Lord and God chose for Abraham. And Abraham was still alive. In fact, Abraham is going to be the one that goes and rescues Lot from the problems he's in because of his own doing, if you will. The believers who conform to the world, the believers who get close to the world and get too close to the world, and they don't want other people to know that they're believers because then people might persecute them. Those believers that stay too close to Sodom will pay the penalty that Sodom pays, you see. You don't want to be in that situation. You be bold in your stand for Jesus Christ. You be bold in your stand for God's Messiah. And if you're bold for Him and you confess Him before men, He will be bold for you. And He will confess you before His heavenly Father and before all the angels of heaven. That's what the Bible says. Don't get too close to the world, you see. You can't have one foot on one side of the fence and the other foot on the other side of the fence. Now we look at verse 13. 
It says, then one who had escaped from this battle where these four king, five kings came, four kings came and took over everything from the five kings. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now it's interesting, verse 13, just a little side note. This is the first time the word Hebrew is used in the Bible. And at that time, he was called the Hebrew. And you remember that Israel, when it was rescued out of the land of Misraim, the land of Egypt, for the Exodus, uh, when it's talking about Passover and the Hebrews coming out in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, coming out from the land of Egypt, it calls them not Israelis at that time, it calls them Hebrews. And that was the language that they spoke, obviously, but that was how they were called as a people then, too. Nowadays, we call them Am Israel, Israelim, Israelis, and they're in the nation of Israel. And that's the way it was in the Bible times, too, after they came into the land and took possession of the land through Yehoshua or Joshua, the general that Moshe Hanavi, Moses the prophet, had trained up to take his place and to go into the land and conquer it. And so we see this one person who escaped the battle that was going on down there and came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was now dwelling at the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Ishkol, the brother of Anir, and they were allies. In other words, they were friends with him. They didn't belong to Abram's community. They weren't part of the hundreds of people that followed along with Abram, this kind of like mobile little town that went from here to there and here, wherever Abram was led by the Lord. That's where these people would go because Abram took care of them all. These people were just friends that Abram had met where he lived there by the terebinth trees of Mamre. Eshkol and the brother Aner are going to be allies with him as Abram goes to fight against these kings that took his nephew captive. So verse 14 we read about it. Now when Abram heard that his brother, in other words his nephew, his brother because he's from the same family tree there, but his nephew was taken captive. When Abram heard that his nephew was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. These trained servants who live in Abram's community didn't just come and join him. It says 318 of them were born in his own house. That's a lot of kids. I've had a couple of kids. I got a lot of gray hair from raising them. I can't imagine 318 families all having kids in my house. I just can't imagine it. But it says that Abram took these people, dedicated, loyal people who worked in his community, who served him, but they did so because he was good. And they went together. They put their lives on the line. They went together and they formed a military unit and they went as far as Don. You say, it doesn't say Don, Pastor Stephen. It says Dan. Well, you're right, except that D-A-N in Hebrew is pronounced Don. In fact, anytime you see an A in an English transliteration of a Hebrew word, it's 90% of the time it's pronounced as ah. If you see an E, then you can call it E. Eh. If you see an I, you can call it E. 
Who knows what the others stand for, you know? But anyway, confusing language. What do you expect from something that's written from the back of the book forward to the front of the book? Just kidding you. That's the way all the Hebrew books are written. And by the way, who's wrong, us or them? I mean, they had it first, right? Maybe we're all doing it wrong. But it says, then Abram divided his forces against the enemy by night. He found them. They went as far in pursuit as Don. Now, guess where that is? In North Israel. Oh, about 125 miles away from where he was. They went as far. Oh, I know. They just got on the bus and got in the van and went up there, right? No. No, they walked. They walked. And they had to walk up there quickly. They were trying to rescue Lot. And oh, by the way, after they made that huge long walk, they had to be refreshed enough to fight for their lives and to recapture and free the hostages that had been kidnapped in Sodom and Gomorrah. Then verse 15 says, Abram divided his forces against the enemy by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is in the north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods and as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, Hamelachim, the kings. And after his return from the feet of Omer, and the kings who were with him, it says, now, I am intentionally going to leave out verse 18 through 20 today. Listen to me say that again. I am intentionally going to leave out verse 18 through 20 today because that's going to be covering very important verses that we want to cover next week as we go into chapter 15. So we're going to skip over that today and we'll cover those verses next week. But now let's continue on from verse 17 in just a little bit after we talk about this, this first area that we just read here and these verses that we just read. Look at Abram's military strategy. Isn't that amazing? You go down, you read about this, and this is a, an army, if you will, of 318 trained servants. Wait a minute, I thought they were shepherds. I thought they were farmers, Abram's group. Well, they were. But any time back then that you came and traveled that many people at a time in a land, you had to be prepared to defend yourself because there was always going to be roaming bands of thieves and there was going to be assemblies and towns that were without law and they were going to try to steal what you had. They were going to steal your possessions. They were going to steal your women. And so Abram had the foresight to assemble 318 serpents, servants capable of fighting and protecting their community. Now think about that. You're feeding 318 servants. You're feeding their families. You're feeding your own family. You're feeding all the livestock. And Abram is paying for it all. What am I saying? He was a very, very rich man. You could probably call him Abraham Gates. No, not Bill Gates. I'm sure Abraham had a lot of wealth, you know, for his day. He was probably one of the wealthiest people. Now, that's not a thing to be aspiring to. 
True riches are the ones in heaven. But Abraham was very wealthy because God was blessing him. Why was God blessing him? Because Abraham was trusting in the Lord. Not because Abraham was playing the stock markets or selling, selling stocks short or anything like that. He didn't have any insider trade or information on, on sheep futures or anything like that. No, Abram was just having trust in God and God was blessing him as a result of it. You want to be blessed? Trust God. And by the way, true riches has nothing to do with money or possessions or wealth. True riches is everlasting life and having peace in your heart from knowing where you're going after this life on earth. Having peace in your heart from knowing that everywhere you go 24-7, 365.24 days per year, God, the creator and maker of all things, almighty God loves you and he is there with you. That's why it's said in the book of Yeshayahu Hanavi, Isaiah, that we would call this one who would come, Emmanuel. If you're a Hebrew speaker, you know what I just said. Im, with, anu, us, el, God. With us is God. God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with us. And that's all the riches you need right there. That's all the peace you need. That's all the information you need. You don't need to know how. You don't need to know when. You don't need to know where. You don't need to know why. All you need to know is who and who is with you. If he's the creator of all things and he's proven his love for you on the cross of Calvary, he is all you need. You don't need anything else. Abram was a man who walked in faith. Yet he was also a prudent man, so he trained these servants to help defend their property and all the other community. Abram kept his own personal army and he kept them trained and ready to defend his interest. Then they went as far as Dan. We said, that's a long ways away. But look at that. God was, I mean, we say the wind was at their back. I would say God was at their back, carrying them along. God got them there quickly, caught up with these guys. Some of the most formidable armies that ever existed during that time. Historians said that they were ruthless, leaving the land completely desolate, destroying armies much, much bigger, much, much bigger. And here's Abraham with his 318 servants. Uh, Abraham's not a young guy anymore. He's going as fast as he can, but he's, they're walking their own donkeys and things like that. And, you know, it's one thing to have tanks and F-15s and F-22 Raptors. I love those. You know, F-35 is good, too. But when you're riding on a donkey, you're kind of disadvantaged against the higher tech things. But you're not disadvantaged anymore when God is the general leading the charge. And God is taking them by night, gave them a military vision how to do this, and told Abram, split them up, attack them by night. So his army split into two groups and they succeeded in surprising the army, rescuing Lot, and recovering all of the goods that had been stolen by these other kings. Now think about that. Now you know, I've talked before, I'm an astrophotographer. It doesn't mean that, you know, astrophotography, you go out, you take a telescope, you take a camera, you take very long pictures of the night sky. You have to know where things are in, in the night sky and actually the telescope's got a computer on it. All I do is type in one of 42,000 things that I want to look at and photograph that night and the telescope swings over right to it. I never even look in the telescope anymore. I've spent almost a year 
taking this out to the dark skies at night and never even looked in the eyepiece because I don't have the eyepiece on there. I have a camera. It's better to let the camera take the picture. Then I look at the picture no matter where I am. And the pictures are always far better than what your eye alone can see because they capture light over a longer period of time. So what I'm about to tell you is what I know about the night sky. Since Abram attacked the enemy at night, here's what I know. You have to be careful when you're attacking by night. Here's why. First of all, obviously, it's harder to see. Now, you could say, well, no problem. Just attack when the moon's up. Well, the problem is, is the enemy can see you just like you can see them. And remember, there are a lot bigger armies than what you have with the 318 people. So you might want to go stealth. You might want to go under cover of darkness. But when you go under cover of darkness, you have to have everything together, especially since he split it up into two parts and they're attacking from different directions. Well, why is that such a problem, Pastor Stephen? Because you may be confused in the confusion of the battle and end up fighting your partners from the other division, you see. You don't want that to happen. You're trying to win against a greatly outnumbered force. Yeah, I mean, they, they, their numbers dwarf your little numbers of 318 soldiers. They have tens of thousands. You don't want to be confused and end up attacking your own group, right? So you had to plan for a night attack. But it was wise. God gave Abram this wisdom. Abram was a shepherd. And here he is doing some pretty good general stuff there, too. And they brought back Lot, his nephew, and they brought back all the goods. But then look what happens. It had said in the verses above, we got down to the point to where it was talking to, uh, in verse 21, it says, now after that, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, remember Sodom had been ravaged, had been destroyed, they had stolen the people, they had stolen all the possessions. The king said to Abram, after Abram got this victory against these four kings, the king of Sodom, one of the defeated kings, whose city was defeated and plundered, he came out and said to Abram, you, you give me the persons and you take all of the wealth, you take all the goods for yourself. Verse 21. Then verse 22, look at what Abram said. You would have thought he would have said, oh, cool, I'll, I'll be even richer then. No, he didn't say that. But Abram said, it says in verse 22, to the king of Sodom, Abram said, I have raised my hand to the Lord. In other words, I've given an oath to the Lord, God Most High. El Elyon, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing as small as a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Except only what the young men have eaten, that's okay, and the portion of the men that came with me, my friends, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, who don't belong to my community, but they're friends of mine, and they, they came to help. Let them take their portion. In other words, that decision is up to them. Feed the young men who have traveled with me, who have fought hard and everything, but I don't want anything from you. You take care of them. You take care of my friends at whatever they say. And that's fine. But I don't want you to ever be able to say, I made Abram rich. Now, why was he so concerned about that? Abram was jealous for the Lord his God. Abram 
had these people, had these servants. He was already wealthy. Abram had all of these things, but he refused the wealth of the king of Sodom because Abram knew the heart of man, that it was wicked. He knew that the heart of man could be very wicked. And even though the king's offer was very generous, Abram decided not to take the rewards from him. People today, people in general, and politicians in particular, you see where I'm going, can use situations like this to boast about what they've done when actually they didn't do it. And maybe they even try to make it look like something that they did that someone else totally had done on their own. But they try to take credit for it to get people to vote for them to keep them into power. That's because they figure that the ends justify the means. That if they get to stay in power, that it's okay to lie. No. The truth will always find you out. Jesus said, There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And what's whispered in the ear will one day be shouted from the rooftop. No secrets in heaven. Better to have your secret sins forgiven by the blood of the, of the Messiah than to try to hide them and try to carry them with you. You can't hide that thing from God. You can't hide those wicked thoughts, what you did in dark in darkness, what you did in secret. God knows all about that. But when He forgives, it says He forgets to remember your sins anymore. And it says He takes them and He places them as far as east is from west. That's the kind of forgiveness you need. That's what I want. I don't want Him playing some DVD or MP4 of my life and all those things and where I've failed and all those secret thoughts that were evil and wicked. All those things that everyone has. Who wants that playing in front of everybody? Nobody, you see. Why not take his forgiveness where even God himself says, then I won't remember your sins anymore. I'll take them and place them as far away from you as east is from west. That's what I want. I like that. I like the sound of that. Ah, We all have problems. And if you were to ask people uh, how many problems Stephen Apple has, I tell you, they would be lined up for miles. And oh, by the way, people that know you would be lined up for miles also. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God in His mercy has given His Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Abram had a rule in his life. He had a rule that he would not solicit money or riches from anyone in his life. And if someone offered the riches to him, he would decline the offer. He knew God was taking care of him, watching over him 24-7. He knew God alone was the one who was all-powerful, all-knowing. And Abram knew from experience already that God loved him, cared for him, and was with him everywhere he would go, and he would take care of him. He didn't want to risk someone else giving him riches and then taking the credit and the glory for Abram's life on themselves. Abram wanted that glory to go to the one to whom it belonged, God alone. To God alone belongs the glory. He alone is all-powerful, all-knowing, loving us with an unconditional love. Abram wanted the credit to go to the one it belonged to. 
He wanted the glory to go to the one who had given him the victory, the one whom he had faithfully, who had faithfully watched over him and his men. Abram wanted the glory to go to God. God is the one who gave Abram the victory. God is the one who would rightly receive the glory. This was Abram's way of taking the time to consider what God had done. This was Abram's way of returning to thank God for all that he had done for him. Now, that's a lesson for us right there today, isn't it? Take the time to consider. Nobody has the time, it seems like, anymore. And the next day, after you prayed and God answered that prayer, you forget it and you're facing new problems. And you move on. You don't take the time to remember. Take the time to consider God's goodness. Take the time to remember His faithfulness. Take the time to return and give thanks to the Lord for what He's already done for you. And then He'll take care of you in the future as well. Then finally in verse 24, we read what Abram does. He tells the king of Sodom, it's okay to feed the young guys. They fought hard. Their portion, I want to look out for them. Go ahead and give them food. And it's okay, of course, for my friends. They don't work for me and everything. Just talk with them and whatever you think is best and they think is best. You agree with something. But look, he's still thinking of other people. He's not thinking of himself. He's not trying to get more wealthy, richer. He's just concerned about others. He's been talking to God. When you've been talking to God, it shows in the way you act. It shows in your life. Then, of course, he was okay with the others receiving whatever they should. That was fine, and he was happy for them. But as for him, he wanted the glory to go to God. He wanted them to have their portions in the spoils, his friends. Just to, That was traditionally common in a just war. A great injustice had been done to the people, and now someone came and fought against the aggressors and took back the possessions and the people, and, and, and as well as the possessions of the aggressors. And that's the way war works, and those are the rules of war, if you will. If there are rules of war, that's one of them. And any time an aggressor invades a land, the, if the people turn it back and, and they capture land of the aggressors, then according to international law, they get to keep that land. Yes, I'm talking about the land of Israel, talking about the Golan Heights, talking about Gaza, I'm talking about all these other places, you see. And yet the world is all upset that they're following international law and doing this. Hmm, must be satanic, must be some sort of prejudice against the Jewish people. It is. And it is spiritual. It's satanic. So to show their gratitude, those who were rescued give part of their recovered possessions to the people that rescued them. And that was a good sign. But Abram didn't want any of that. He didn't need any of that. But to the guys who had left their homes to come and fight and rescue the others, he permitted them to take food. To his friends who came and did these things, he permitted them to take food and spoils. He couldn't answer for them. Now, the thing I want to get across today as we wrap up is we see how God is stretching Abram's faith as he goes through life. Remember? At first, God called Abram to step out in faith. Then Abram had to decide whether he was going to follow God, not only for himself, but also for his wife Sarai. Then Abram's father passed away in Iran. Remember, we read, not Iran, but Haran. And Abram inherited all the people that had been traveling with their family and all the responsibilities that came along with a group that large. 
Then Abram found himself mentoring Lot, his nephew, teaching him how to farm, teaching him how to be a shepherd. All along, while his community of people were having their families and children in his house, and all of them were depending on Abram to eat and to have shelter and even to have their own crops and herds. But Abram wasn't worried about it. He wasn't stressed. Even though he was an older guy, there's no way he could have done all this on his own. No way he could have done it all on his own. He had faith in God to take care of not only him and Sarai, but everyone else who was there with him. Then Lot made a bad decision, moved into the world, as we saw when he moved down to Sodom and uh, in that area with all that evil and wickedness. Thought he could keep his head above water, but no, he became vexed in that place and and almost lost his life twice now. Once when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and once when these kings came through and ravaged the whole place. Eventually war came to the place and Lot and his family and all they owned were carried away captive by a group of these four foreign kings and their vicious armies. So it shows you that you really can't live in the world and expect not to get burned. Just when Abram was getting used to all of his other responsibilities, taking care of all these people who are traveling with him, all of these things that he was responsible for, hundreds and hundreds of people in his entourage, in his community that he was taking care of, now Lot and everyone else gets kidnapped. Now Abram's got to become a general and go after them, somehow fight against armies that greatly outnumber his, and somehow win. But Abram knew the secret. It wasn't in superior military strategy. It wasn't in money and wealth and buying people to help him out in this. It wasn't in anything else other than two words, trusting God. He knew that God would keep and guide those 318 young men who served him, many who had their own families, now, Abram was to have faith in God to give this small group of men success against these large armies who were destroying everyone they had fought. Now, Abram's faith, though he was older and weaker, was going to be stronger. He was to believe God not only for himself nowadays, but for the hundreds of other souls that came in his community. And that shows that God is interested in growing you in faith and how much you trust God in life. As long as you have breath, faith is not a one-time experience. Get that out of your mind. Faith is something that keeps with you throughout life and it keeps being stretched out and growing every day of your life as long as there's breath in you. Here's what I'm saying. You are called to live a life of faith in God. I want to say that again, so important. You are called, first and foremost, to live a life of faith in God, knowing God and trusting Him as God. Loving God with all you have, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. How can you love God with all that you have, heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you are not depending on Him for everything in life? Remember what we said the other day. Live by faith. Grow in grace. Walk in love. That's the secret. 
You were created to trust God. You were designed to be cared for by Him and to rest securely in His care, at peace in Him. You were designed to be His little child, loved and cared for by Him. The Creator of the universe wants to be your Heavenly Father and watch over you, protect you, and provide for you. He wants to wash your sins away in the atoning sacrifice of His Son, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And He wants to bring you into His beautiful eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and give you everlasting life. You are loved by God. You are loved by God. You can rest in Him. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come to Him? Why don't you give your life to God today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. He'll answer you and He'll rescue you from that darkness. And He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given newness of life. He'll change you into a new person. And throw away all those past failures. You'll be made completely new. Given a new start. And He will give you everlasting life in heaven. That's guaranteed by God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord. And receive God's peace in your life. Did you know you can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment? Just pray something like this. You can even repeat it after me if you'd like. Just simply say, God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in that heart. and Over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him in His Word. And talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do amazing things in your life. 